me to Luke, the 16th chapter. And we will, for a few minutes today, be talking about the reality of eternity. I'm excited about the notes in front of me. Some of these notes, the back two or three pages, the ink is so fresh that when I, when I put it together, it actually smeared. So that's, don't you like fresh words when you go to a restaurant or fresh food? Isn't it great to, leftovers aren't bad, but they're just something about something that's just been cooked. That taco soup tonight will be fresh. That homemade ice cream will be fresh. And we believe the word of God this morning will be fresh. Heard a story on Facebook about a U.S. Marine riding a Harley Davidson. I thought about Matt and, and, and others in the house that rides Harleys. And uh, driving by the Knoxville Zoo, he saw that a lion had snatched a young girl from her parents and grabbed her by the coat and was getting ready to eat her. So he laid the Harley down, run over, and punched the lion so hard in the nose that the lion dropped the girl, and he grabbed the girl and gave it back to her parents, which were screaming, freaking out. And all of a sudden, everybody was overjoyed, overwhelmed. Several of the tourists were calling him a hero. You're incredible. You're phenomenal. All What you just did was, was miraculous. And a guy ran up to him and said, hey, I'm a newspaper reporter, and I promise you this story will be on the front page tomorrow. So tell me, tell me about yourself. What, what, what do you do? What's your political beliefs? What? And he said, I am a United States Marine, and I'm a devoted Republican. So the next day, he went to the stand, bought a paper, and sure enough, there on the front page read these words, U.S. Marine assaults an African immigrant and steals his lunch. <laughs> that shows you about how much confidence that I have in the media. But I have confidence this morning in the Word of God. I said, I have confidence this morning in the Word of God. I don't believe it'll leave us astray. Uh, 20 minutes later, the blondes will get that joke. Please try not to burst out in laughter 20 minutes because this morning's message is a, a very serious message. We know that Jesus shared 31 parables. Half of them had to do with fine. Actually, you got it. You got it. It's a great joke. Actually, when did you explain it to her about the... Never mind. Um, those of you listening by podcast, we regret that you're not here because we have fun on Sunday morning. I believe that the, 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 the church body should enjoy the things of God. He's a good God. He loves laughter, and he loves, he, God loves funny things. Realize two out of every three people in the world are ugly. Look to your left. Look to your right. Make your own decisions. You can look at them and say, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. But what a great place to be stuck in the house of God. We've just enjoyed 45 minutes of incredible worship. Pastor A.C. took us in the presence of God, and I believe that God is, is here today. They asked, go ahead, give the Lord a hand clap. That's all right. God has blessed us. They asked the man of God, do you have a word? He says, it depends. Do you have a song? Every one of us need a song. I shared with you a few weeks ago, praise brings God to us, but worship takes us to God. Praise is that sword that defeats horizontally, but worship is that javelin that connects vertically. And I believe as we horizontally praise him and worship him, I believe he comes down, but I believe he wants to do more than just come down. I believe he wants to do more than just give us goosebumps and make us feel wonderful and prosperous and all those, and those things are all great, those things are all wonderful except when you don't feel prosperous, when you don't feel wonderful. And that's when you look back and glean and remember what you learned on Wednesday and Sunday and your own 
personal devotions. Uh, God is helping me minister to this church. I, I was told this week of a book that I have to get. It's entitled How to Walk on Eggshells. It's about borderline personalities. I said, hey, half our church has borderline personalities. I better get that book because I'm probably going to need that to do some counseling. So I'm so glad you're in such a, a lighthearted mood today because the message this morning really is a very serious message. And I want you to leave here. There was a, there was a wife that had an unsaved husband that she was trying to win to the Lord through her life and through her, her actions. And one day, after, after, after many weeks and months of begging him to go to church, she, she committed, he committed, he said, I will go to church with you on Sunday, two services, and if nothing happens, I don't ever want you to ask me again. She said, okay, I will do that. And so she took him to the church, and that Sunday, the, the sermon was about hell. And it was hot, it was frightening, and it was intimidating, and, and uh, an invitation was given. He sat back with her, did not respond. That night, she took him to a different church, and lo and behold, the message was on a place called hell. And it was all about hell and eternity, and the, and the minister gave an altar call, and the husband got up and went to the altar and gave his heart to God. And so after service, of course, she was ecstatic. She was just on cloud nine. But she asked him, she said, I'm, I'm a little confused this morning. The preacher preached on hell, and you didn't respond. But tonight, the preacher preached on hell, and you did respond. What was, what, what was the difference? He said, well, to be honest with you, this morning when the preacher preached on hell, I felt like he wanted me to go there. But tonight when the preacher preached on hell, I felt like he didn't want me to go there. And know today that God does not want you to go to hell. God created hell for Satan and one-third of the fallen. That's who hell was created for. If you go to hell, you're a stranger. You're not meant to go to hell. Heaven was created for you. And the Word says, Eye has not seen, ears not heard, neither entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for him. So if you like hot fudge Sundays and you like Disney World and you like Waikiki, Florida, I'm telling you, heaven is a lot better than all those lumped together. Someone say, praise God, I'm ready, but I don't want to go right now. <laughs> we're, we're, we're ready, but we don't want to go. We want to enjoy the things of life that God has called us to be the church and be involved in the things that God has called us to be in. 20, 31 parables, but in the parables, Jesus never referred to any old-time prophets he never gave names to any characters in, in a parable. I do not believe what we're about to share is a parable. I believe it's a true story of a man that really lived, went to a place that really does exist, and the Lord is sharing that with us today. There was a certain rich man, Luke 16, clothed in linen and clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Look at somebody say, he had it made. He ate high on the hog. The best wine, the best entertainment, the best accommodations, the best vacations, this guy had it made. And there was also a certain beggar named Lazarus, which laid his gate full of sores, desiring to be fed of the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass the beggar was died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, being in torments, how scary is that? Look at somebody and say, that is scary. Seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me that you may send Lazarus 
that he may dip the, the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, in thy lifetime thou receivest good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. They go on to talk about a great gulf that separates hell from paradise. A rich man asked Abraham to send Lazarus to his five brothers, that they didn't know the Lord and they had not made plans for eternity, and that if, they, if Abraham sent Lazarus, he believed that they would respond. But Abraham says something very, very incredible. He says, if they don't believe the prophets and they don't believe the, the, the patriarchs, they will not believe one risen from the dead. And how scary is that today that we live in an, an environment, we live in an atmosphere if someone claimed to have died and come back from the dead and have some kind of evidence to, to produce that and, and, and prove that, there still would be people that would not believe in eternity. They would not believe that there's a heaven to gain. Look at somebody and say, there's a heaven to gain and there's a hell to shun. There are three references to this rich man. The first reference is where the Bible says a rich young ruler in this, in this story, it says the rich man was clothed in purple. Purple was a, a symbol of royalty, leadership, noble. This rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you know the story. Jesus said, do what the commandments say. And this morning, I have a beautiful watch that came from Greece. It's an Armani. But in the days of Christ, they didn't have wrist watches. They had a band on their wrist that they called a phylactery. And written on that phylactery was the commandments. It was the word of God. There's also in that, in that generation that when you went to their home, nailed to the post of their door, there was a decree. We have, we have one nailed to the doorpost of our house. So Jesus said, "What you know the law. What does the law say? Love the Lord thy God, keep thy commandments. And Jesus said, you know, you've done well, but there's one area of your life that's out of order. Sell what you have, give to the poor, and then come and follow me. And the Bible says the rich, young ruler went away sorrowful. And later in life, I can share with you maybe a story of a rich, young ruler that came to Jesus there in the garden when he was being arrested, and they went to grab him, and they, they grabbed his robe. He didn't have anything on. I like to believe that maybe that was the rich, young ruler that went and did what God told him to do, and he came to Jesus there right before Calvary. The second mention of, of the rich, young ruler is where the rich man said, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. The Bible says he tore down his barns to build bigger barns so he could eat, drink, and be merry. And that night God visited him and said, Thou fool, today thou will stand in eternity. This could be that same rich ruler. This could be that same person. This is just a couple of things that I want to mention concerning wealth, concerning money. Let me tell you something. Money answereth all things. Money solves a lot of problems. Money will open doors, money will, will promote you, money will allow you to accomplish things in life, and we know that money is important. But there's a danger when you go beyond money as an asset into the area of the love of money. The Word tells us that it's harder for a rich man, Matthew 19 and 24, to enter into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, most of us relate to a needle being about two inches long, sharp, and that's what in the old days, moms used to repair clothing and used to knit, used to make, I don't know, 
I don't know if this generation even knows what a needle is or what it's for or if they've ever used it or not. And that's when we think about the needle, we think about that's the application, but that's not the application. Entering in Jerusalem in the 12 gates, there were archways. There were three archways per gate. And in order to enter into the city, it was necessary to force your camel to humble himself to his knees and then make his way into the city. And that's the eye of the needle. It's not impossible for a rich man to enter into heaven, but the word says there's a lot of challenges, there's a lot of areas of your life that you've got to be careful of. Solomon told us in Proverbs, he says, Lord, don't make me rich lest I forget thee, and don't make me poor lest I curse thee. Somewhere in life there has to be a balance, and that balance we find is that God has balance for every one of us, that he has a balance of our, of our finances. He have a, has a balance of every area of our life. He knows every need that we have before we know that we have a need. And Paul said it so well, my God shall supply all my need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So we understand that connection with Jesus becomes, makes us joint heirs, and then we're susceptible to all the things that God has for us. And aren't you glad he doesn't just own the cattle of a thousand hills. He owns a thousand hills, all the minerals below, all the, all the fruit trees, everything. God owns everything. And he created it for our pleasure that we might enjoy life and have life and have it more abundantly. Look at someone and say, amen. So somewhere there, there's a balance. As we look to the word of God, we find there are four types of people in life, four types of people in life. There is the person that is motivated by money, there's a person that money has become their God. Money has become their, 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 their first love, their, their first joy. And you can take a person's checkbook and see the checks they've written out to find out where a person's heart is. Can anybody relate? I know that George Washington goes to church and Ben Franklin goes to the disco. Explain the will to Ashley so she will... the, the Four types of people. There's the type of person, Haggai 1 and 8, where God says, consider your ways. You're putting your wages in pockets with holes in them. There's that person that seems to be motivated by money, that money is their God, but they never seem to have enough. I have a personal friend two years ago lost $38 million in one day. One day. When, the, when Citigroup crashed and burned. I met with him a couple days later after that at the Chop House there in Atlanta, one of our favorite places to meet. I enjoy him. I enjoy his company. I enjoy picking his brain. I asked him, I said, will you recover this loss? He said, no, not my lifetime. He said, the estate might recover it, but I won't recover it. And I asked him, I said, in, in what you lost, does that change your lifestyle? that changed anything about you? He said, no. He said, I still have enough to do what I want to do. But there are people that money has become their God. It seems like the more they pursue it, the farther from them it becomes. Can anybody relate? And then we know that we, that we know there are people that are living in the arena of not never enough, but just barely enough. Can anybody relate? They're just, bar they're, just, they're just barely, and I'm reminded of the widow that Elijah went to. She had enough oil, enough meal to make one more cake. They were going to eat it, and they were going to die. What a tragic story. The man of God came to her house, and he said, bake me, watch this. And I didn't see this until this morning. I've, I've preached this text probably dozens of times. But he said, bake me a little cake first. You know, and I never saw that word little. He wasn't, asking, he wasn't asking for what she could not provide. He was not asking for what she could not produce. He was not being greedy. He wasn't, 
And I don't want to use the word televangelist because I've been a televangelist. I don't want to, I don't, but we have a tendency to try to categorize, well, guys on TV, all they want is your money. No, all Walmart wants is your money. All, all, all Aubrey's wants is your money. Hello, all Taco Bell wants is your, is your money. Hello, am I helping anybody in the building? Hopefully, we can go to church to find out how to get money and how to spend it better and how to invest it and how to sow it and know that God watches over the seed. So there's those that, that live in the environment of, I just barely got enough. Many of us are robbing Peter to pay Paul, but Peter's broken. Now we're robbing his mom. Many of us make our payments Friday afternoon at 5.15, knowing it won't hit our checking account until Tuesday morning. Am I talking to anybody in the building besides me? Many of us look at our mail, and we consider all junk mail because they're all bills. How many can relate? All the mail I get is junk mail. There was a day when I would open the mail, and there'd be money in there. I like those days better than the days I'm living in now. It seems like everybody wants a piece of me. Everybody wants a part of me. And if I could sell a lung, because I got two of them for about 35 grand, I could probably get ahead. Hello, am I helping anybody? You know that I'm a landlord. I have 10 rentals. I have, this will blow your mind, I have rented to two different entities that have won lotteries, and both of them wrote me bad checks. One lot, one, one, one won three million, one won five million. I carried a check in my wallet for about three months on my way to Chattanooga. I could stop at Udawal at the bank there. I, I, I went there so many times, the, the, the teller actually knew my name and would greet me when I walked in the door. I'd walk in the bank, she'd put you a couple of things, and she'd do that. But one day, she did this. Praise God, I was persistent, and I actually cashed that check that I've been carrying for three months. So if you've got a hot check, keep it in your wallet. You never know when God might make it good. Then there's that are living in the arena of enough. They have enough. They have enough groceries. They have gas money. They have enough for investments. They have enough for savings. And that reminds me of the little boy. When the little boy went to hear Jesus preach, he had plenty to eat. He had five loaves, two fishes. I mean, this kid had enough. He didn't just have enough for him, but he had enough for everybody else. And I believe that's the definition of prosperity, not just having enough to meet your needs, the needs of your family, those that you're responsible for, but to, to meet the needs of somebody else. I love a story that we got in the, um, on Facebook from Robbie Glover. I don't know if you read it or not, but Robbie was in line. I, let's just call it a Walmart. I don't know where it was, but she was in line, and the elderly gentleman in front of her did not have enough money to pay for groceries. And it was embarrassing. It was obviously, it was, obviously, he was very embarrassed and didn't have the money. And Robbie looked at the teller and said, hey, whatever he owes, just put it on my bill, and I'll, and, and I'll take care of it. And so, of course, the, the gentleman was overwhelmed with joy and appreciated Robbie. And Robbie went and said something to the teller about how good God was. I'm not sure exact terminology, the verbiage. And the teller said back to her, yes, he is. And then when Robbie got to the car and looked at a receipt, the teller not only paid the, the gentleman's the bill, but, he, but she paid half of Robbie's. Tell me, what you talk, you talk about pay it forward. That is a great definition of standing in line, having the ability to pay for a single mom's groceries or pay for, in other words, prosperity is have enough to meet the needs of my kids and having enough left over to meet the needs of somebody else. And then we get into the arena of more than enough. When Pharaoh had a dream, only Joseph could interpret it. He told Pharaoh there's going to be seven years of blessing, seven years of famine. And through the process of that, he told Pharaoh the plan. Pharaoh incorporated him to, to, to watch over the plan, made him the number two man in the country. 
in Genesis 41 and 49, and I don't know that I've ever seen this before, but Genesis 41 and 49, it says that Joseph saved so much corn, it got to a place where it was impossible to number how much corn. It said he had saved corn as the sands of the sea. And what a plan God gave Joseph, not just to spare the world, but to spare his family that would come to Egypt during the time of famine and settle there in the land of Goshen. And then 430 years later, leave. They went in 70. They went out three and a half million. Those Jews know how to produce, don't they? How scary? Well, you know, Jacob had 12 sons, so I guess. Wouldn't it be scary if everyone in this church had 12 sons? We'd have the largest church in the city. I want some of you moms to get busy and then get to what God has called you to do and, and, and birth to some more babies. I appreciate Jack, uh, Jackie, but we need some more. We need some more babies in this church. So, so here we have the area of never enough, barely enough, enough, and more than enough. And I don't know about you, but I would like to live in the more than enough capacity. Can anybody relate? Can anybody say, absolutely. I don't want someone that I love die and leave me a bunch of money. I want somebody I don't know die and leave me a bunch of money. Do I have a a witness in, in the building? Matthew 6 and 24, Jesus said this, you can't love God and money. There's got to be some priorities. When we talked a couple of weeks ago about the gods at war and one of the gods that try to interfere with your God, and that is the love of money. Remember, there's nothing wrong with money, but you know the difference is between a workaholic and an alcoholic? Help me. Talk to me. The spelling. That's the only, that's the only difference. And that workaholic, that money is their motivator and money is their God, at the end of the road, they get what they can, sit on the can, and then they get sick and they spend all their money getting healthy because they burnt their body out trying to get money. And they live, usually live the last of their life alone because nobody likes them because they didn't sow anything, any friendship. Do I have an amen in the building? We know this morning that we are the sheep of his pasture and that he is a good Shepherd, can I show you this morning just how good God really is? In Psalms 23, David said, the Lord is my shepherd. And I acknowledge that. I acknowledge that I am a sheep. I acknowledge that I'm not all that smart. Sheep aren't known for being all that smart. Sheep aren't known for all the good company they keep. Sheep aren't known for staying where they're supposed to stay. Sheep aren't known for submitting. Sheep are pretty much, and if you ever had a sheep or a goat, you can tie them up. You can pin them up. They're going to find a way to get out of that pen. They're going to, can, can the Hope House girls relate to that? I mean, I went to visit them. There were goats everywhere. There were goats on the highway. There was a dead goat laying by the side of the highway. There were goats out in the pasture. One day I was deer hunting, been there about five times, hadn't seen a deer. A goat walked in, the, in, my, in my bow sights. I said, God, can I take him? And God said, no, you better not. Pastor Connie may get a piece of you. So I let the goat live. Look at somebody who say, he let the goat live. But I am, I, am, I, am, I am a sheep. I'm, I've got an attitude. I'm rebellious. I'm content. I'm argumentative. I'm, I'm all those things, the characteristic of a sheep. But something about a sheep, when you, you know how to tell the difference between a sheep and a goat? They're verbiage. When you correct a sheep, a sheep will go bad. But they'll submit. When you correct a goat, a goat says, nah, I'm not going to submit. That help you? So are you a bad or are you a... Nah, it's your call. You decide. You can step out of that goat skin and become a sheep overnight if you want to. That's the power of salvation. But he said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I love that Ephesians 3 and 20 says, now unto him 
that's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. In Deuteronomy, God said, don't forget me because I give you the power to get wealth. And thank God for a brain that can focus, a brain that can work, a brain that can stay focused in an area, have a good job, be promoted on that job, and have increase and have blessing. Thank God for that ability and thank God for that power. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David said in Psalms 37 and 25, I've been old, I've been young, I'm now old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or a seed out begging for bread. And aren't you glad that God takes care of his tithers? God takes care of his offering givers. God takes care of those that are focused more on the kingdom than they're focused on their own personal stuff. It's because when you plant the kingdom of God, you're planting in yourself, you're planting the kingdom that you're a part of, and God blesses that. David said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want for rest, because he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. There are times in our life when we will get so irritated, so agitated, so animated, so aggravated that, that we are just, we're, we're in a frenzy. We're like that hamster I talked about two weeks ago in the cage. They're going round and round and round, getting absolutely nowhere, but we are flat getting it. There's a Dunkin' Donuts commercial where at 6 o'clock in the morning, the guy would go out to work, make the donuts, and then he would come back at home and go out. And one morning he opened the door and there he was standing there. He had already gone and made, remember that commercial? Anybody remember that? And, and when we get to that place in our lives, sometimes God will go, whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You need to chill out. You need to vegetate. You need, you, you need, you need a sea law in your life. And there are seasons in our life when he makes us to lie down in green pastures. I remember one season in my life when I was going 800 directions. We were speaking all over the nation, different parts of the world. We had everything going. There was the, the church's rock and everything was happening. And I got so busy doing the church's work that I forgot to do the work of the church. Well, I flipped a four-wheeler, broke my back, was on the couch for about six weeks. And in that, in that season of six weeks, watched Christian television 24-7, God began to speak to me, encourage me, give me a love back for the word of God. And I went back to study. I went back to pray. Hey, what a concept, study and prayer, that a pastor would study and pray. How cool is that? So there are times in your life that the Lord will say, whoa, you just need to take a selah. I shall not want for refreshment because he leadeth me beside still water. Is the still water important? Absolutely. The shins, the ankles, and the, and the knees of the sheep are very weak. You ever watch a sheep? They're very wobbly. They're, they're, very, they're very disoriented. They don't really run that well. They, they have a, a, a challenge walking. If a sheep would go to one of our creeks, let's say Teleco or, or Hawassi, and try to walk among those rocks to drink the water, he would fall, break a leg, get hurt, get wounded. But God said, I'm going to lead you beside still water. And aren't you, aren't you glad that there is a place in life that you can go and meditate, a place where you can go and you can drink and you can be refreshed. Let the church say amen. I shall not want for restoration, for he restoreth my soul. We know Joel 2, God wants to restore every single area of your life. If you didn't have good parents, he wants to bring spiritual parents in your life. If you have a good education, he wants to give you the ability to learn and do better. If you never had any joy, he wants you to have joy. He's the God of restoration. Aren't you glad for that today? I shall not want for direction because he leadeth me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. I shall not want for direction. I shall not want for, uh, David said in Psalms 3, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly nor standeth the seat of the sinner, but his delight is in the, help me, 
in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate both day and night. Thank God for direction the word of God. I promise you, any question you have is found in this book. I promise you, wherever you're at, someone's already been there. I promise you, you can find yourself in this book. I, you can find your, the very thing you're going through. It might be a different topic, a different heading, but it's you. And you begin to read what Joe went through, begin to read what Joseph went through, begin to read what Jesus went through, read what Paul went through. You say, I can relate to that. And like Job, I don't know why this is going on. I don't know why he's slaying me. And he wasn't. We understand later it was the devil. But he said, whatever's going on, I am going to trust in the Lord. And though skin worms destroy my body and my flesh, I shall see God. A message of resurrection without a Bible. God's speaking into Job's life and giving him direction. And we thank God for that. I shall not want for protection. For yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That someone say, praise the Lord. Job said, I, I can't find God. I'm looking for him. Nevertheless, he knows the path that I take. And aren't you glad that there's a highway called holiness that no lion or ravenous beast can enter thereon, but it's for the redeemed to walk that God has ordained, orchestrated, and ordered your steps. Say that with me. He's ordained, orchestrated, and ordered my steps. God does everything to the beat of music. He orchestrates. He sings over you, Zephaniah 3 and 17. He gives you a song in the night. He's ordained you, and if God has put that destiny in you, it's going to come to pass. And then God orders things around you to submit to him so that you can accomplish what God wants you to accomplish. Man, I'm preaching better than you're not, but that's okay. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want for companionship, for surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I need, I need real quick, I need goodness. I need goodness. Pastor Todd, I want you to be goodness. And Pastor Jeff, I want you to be mercy. David said, everywhere I go, there's two angels, goodness and mercy. And everywhere I go, they follow me. When I go in, they're there. When I go out, they're there. When I lay down, they're there. Everywhere I go, when I go to the job, when I get in my car, when I go to Walmart, wherever I go. And when the enemy, hello, it gets better. When the enemy, Christine, we're going to let you be the enemy. Come on. Come and be, come be the devil just for a minute. Just for the devil. Because we give the devil way too much credit. We build him way too big, way too strong, way too powerful. But when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord lifts up the standard of goodness and mercy that they go before me. What's this? They go, hello, they go before me and they can, they can deal with anything. Come on, now, now you can give the Lord a hand clap of praise for goodness and mercy. Goodness and mercy. I shall not want for, for direction. For he leads me the path of righteousness. names, I share that with you. I shall not want for comfort because thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I shall not want for companionship for thou art with me. Am I preaching good this morning? I shall not want, watch it. I shall not for substance because thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Right there when the enemy's trying to make me crash and burn, God exalts me as God did Haman, the very intent that Haman had for Mordecai. God, God did not allow that to happen. He shut that door. Aren't you glad that God is one that can shut the door? I shall not want for anything in that life which is to come because I will dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. That should excite somebody in this house today. Let's look at creation. Brother Keith and I got in, got, Keith got me all stirred up last night. Couldn't go to sleep till 1230. I got so excited. Genesis 1 and 1, in the beginning, and I personally believe, Steve, I believe that could have been 
millions, billions, trillions of years ago. If the Hawaiian Islands were created by a volcano regurgitating, for that volcano at sea level to completely run over, thaw, solidify, for the Hawaiian Islands to be formed, it had to take millions and billions and trillions of years. I don't have a problem with dinosaurs. I don't have a problem with life before Adam and Eve. I have absolutely no problem whatsoever. And if you really want to visit one day, I'll show you in Scripture where there probably was a generation before Adam and Eve. I'm a problem with any of that. But when God created Adam and Eve and put himself upon them and created them in his likeness and in his image, he gave them some counsel. He told them of every tree of the garden freely eat except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's not something you need to know. That's not something you need to be part of. But it was a way of life. It was there. Regardless of whether you want to ignore it, it was there. And we know the, we know the story. God told Adam before Eve was made. Adam was created. Eve was made. There is a difference. God made man. He just threw together some dirt, slugs, and snails and puppy dog tails and junk. And, but when God went, to, went with a woman, he, he, he took a little bit more interest, a little bit more intention. And when Adam saw his wife, he immediately named her. Whoa, man! <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. God told Adam, in the day that you eat of this tree, he shall surely die. But we know that Adam lived to be 930 years. We know that Lamech, the father of Noah, lived to be 777 years. How ironic. Seven, number of completion. Noah comes, number of eight. Eight going to the ark. Eight being the number of new things, a new, heaven, a new earth. Enoch lived to be 365 years. How ironic. 365 days in the year. He lived to be 365 years before God took him, and we know that he is still alive today. Methuselah lived to be 969 years, which you, you take those three, those three numbers, you have 666, the number of man. I was talking with Brother Keith last night. I said, how is it that Adam and Eve lived 130 years before they had another baby? Noah was 500 years old before he birthed Ham, Shem, and Japheth. What were they doing? They didn't have, did Georgia win last night? They did, it was, a, it was a good game. They didn't have sports. They didn't have jet skis. They didn't have Wi-Fi. They didn't have Facebook. How in the world did they, and how in the world did they go 130 years and only have, having a baby like every 100 years? You ever thought about that? Anyway, anyway, just, just a thought, just a, just, a, just a possibility. But when God created man, God intended for Noah, for Adam, for Methuselah, to live forever. Death was not a part of God's process. Death was a part of Satan's process. And for 4,000 years, Satan had the keys of hell and of death. For 4,000 years, Satan was pretty much the god of the grave. Oh, he lost the widow's son to Elijah. 
He lost Elijah, and he lost a young man that was dead that fell on Elisha's bones. He'd lost two or three, but for 4,000 years, he'd murdered millions. 4,000 years, he had thousands and thousands of heart attacks, thousands of wars. He was the God. He was the God of death. He was the God of the grave, and that's pretty much what he did. First, Second Peter 3 and 2 says that a day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years a day. So think of that just for a moment. God told Adam in the day that the God would have been a thousand years. Are you with me? In the day that you eat, you shall surely die. Adam did not quite make it a thousand years and he died. And no one else lived that long. Methuselah was 900 in 69 years. This is simply a theory. And if you want to take me out the coffee later and actually pay for the coffee and you want to visit, we'll, we'll visit with this. This is, this is simply a theory. Modern doctors today cannot explain why we die. If we sunburn our, sun, our skin peels, we have new skin. Most of us grow hair. Right up into death, your fingernails continue to grow. You're, 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 if I told you how many blood cells is being produced in the next few minutes, it would probably freak many of you out. Every few minutes, your body completely rebuilds itself. There's no reason why you should die. There's no reason. But we die. In the day of Adam, it was around 800, 900 years. When it got to Noah, it got to 700 years. And, then, and as it transgressed, then they started living 120 years. And then God, in the New Testament, promised 70 years. If you live 70, we've done well. Anything beyond that is just just an extra blessing. So it looks like that man's lifespan is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And probably obvious to the things that we're putting in the air, the things we're putting in the water. Our food has absolutely no nutritional value whatsoever. There's so many chemicals sprayed on what we eat to kill bugs, hormones to promote the growth of of chickens. It's just, we're not eating right. We're not, we're not breathing right. We're not, most of us aren't living right. I'm going to rephrase that. Most of us aren't, most of us, let me rephrase that. God wants you to eat to live. He doesn't want you to live to eat. I'll be very, very careful what I say, and I honor him. I honor his ministry. He is in heaven today with the Lord. But Pastor Ron and I went and preached a revival. I won't tell you where it was. It was a very, very great, it was a great church. But the pastor, every day, we were there, I think the revival went two weeks, every day, the pastor took us to Captain D's. And that was his life. And, and he, would, he, would, he got to a place where his stomach had stretched. He told, me that, he told me that he was never full. He was never full. And he ate so much that his wife weighed about 90 pounds, little tiny thing like Pastor Rhonda. But... They didn't sleep together. He had to sleep in the chair because he couldn't lay down. He died early. He died, he, died, he died premature. He could not. Pastor Ron and I have a family we know very well, and I will not tell it because it's going to podcast, that the son was bigger around than he was tall. I'm not exaggerating. Ten years old, he was bigger around than he was tall. That precious man of God, incredible, phenomenal. He has died, he has died prematurely because of his weight. And in those days, Patty, I was so naive as an evangelist. There were, two, there were two bakery shops in the church. that They owned bakery shops. And every day they would bring these, like, like trays of, do- of donuts. Every day. 
every day. And so about three or four, did I not get up in the pulpit and say, if you guys keep sending donuts to your pastor, it's going to kill him. I, I didn't speak death over him, but, but you, you, can't, you can't live like that. That was also the revival. Man, I wish I could tell where it was. But in that revival, you ready for this? For some reason, I just had this, I just had this, this, this place in my heart to pray for those that were struggling. See, see, a lot of us are overweight because our body, there's something wrong with our hormones, something wrong with our, are you with me? So just because people are large does not mean they're obese, does not mean that they're eating, doesn't, I mean, there's something wrong with their body. So, so Gail, I had an altar call one Sunday night. I said, those of you, if you struggle with medication, you struggle with diet, you struggle, everything you try to do, make everything right, I want you to come. I believe God is going to bless you as I am standing here right now, as God is my witness. And Pastor Rhonda, I don't, I don't think you were there. I think I was still single in that particular time. I, when, I, when I gave the altar call, two girls, you ready? Their slip fell off down to their ankles, their, their slip, and they both claimed they lost 100 pounds in that altar service. The next night, the church was packed, but I never gave that. I never felt impressed to do that. I never, isn't, that isn't that funny how God works? But the, the point that I'm making, we shouldn't die. This body should not die. But because of sin entering the process, now every man has to taste death. My personal opinion, Revelation 22 said, there's a tree. Look at somebody say, there's a tree. In heaven, the leaves of the tree or for the healing of the nation. Just suppose, theory, that there's a missing element, a missing vitamin, a missing ingredient, a missing something our body is missing that does not allow us to live forever. Maybe that missing element is in leaf of that tree that we're going to eat when we get to heaven, and we will never die. We will live forever. Somebody give the Lord a hang type of prayer. And that's, that's really all I wanted to say about, about creation. A day with the Lord is a thousand years. I want to just for a moment, I want to shift gears on you if this paper will submit. When the rich man died and opened his eyes, he not only found himself in hell, but he found himself in torments. Plural. Five torments that you'll find in hell. Torment number one, you're there. You're there. I mean, to close your eyes in death and to open your eyes in a place of horror, in a, in a place of, of odor, in a place of tragedy, in a, in, to be overwhelmed by the fact you didn't believe in it. You read books that didn't believe in it. You hung around people that didn't believe in it. You had teachings that didn't believe in it. You believe in soul sleep. You believe in nirvana. You believe in reincarnation. But all of a sudden, you're there. What a horror. Not just that you're there, but you're there forever. Day after day after day, week after week. It's not a nightmare. It's not a bad hair day. It's never going to change. The first torment. The second torment, there are 
people there because of you. As a mom or a dad, you didn't raise up your kids in the house of God. You didn't teach your kids of the heaven to gain, the hell to shine. They never went to Sunday school. They never, they never learned anything about Jesus. They didn't learn anything about God. Pastor Ron and I flew in Lowe's private jet to Arkansas to preach the funeral of a beloved saint that died in a car wreck. And I actually sat down next to, on the corporate jet, a, 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 an empl- employer, an employer of Lowe's that had never heard the story of David and Goliath. We can't grasp that. We grow up around things, God, stories in the Bible, all those things. But there are actually people in our, in our life that have no knowledge of God, no knowledge of salvation, no knowledge of the things that God has prepared for them. So the, the, sec, the first torment is you're there. And the second torment, there are people there because of you. Think of ministers that teach from the pulpit, there is no hell. And all of a sudden, not only find themselves in hell, but members of their congregation begin to seek them out and scream at them and curse them. And, and if they can cause any physical pain, cause that pain and say, I'm here because of you. What about children that we have birthed and sired and we thought they did great in college, they did great in society, they, 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 they were financially, they did well for those kids to seek us out. Why didn't you tell me? Can, can you imagine that? The third torment that you will find in hell is the actual environment. The Bible says it's a place where the worm dieth not, so we know that hell is full of maggots. The Bible says that hell is a place of weeping and wailing where there's a gnashing of teeth. The Bible says that hell is a place of outer darkness. To describe outer darkness, I would have to go to Calvary when just for a moment, just for a moment, just for, just for an instant, God turned his back on his son. And Jesus from the cross felt it to such a degree that he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Not just, to, not just to know that you're in hell, but you'll never have a God connection again. There'll never be another prayer, another song, another friend, another comfort, another scripture, another taste of God's glory, taste of God's joy to forever be separated from the presence of God. The fourth thing that you will find in hell that there was so much you could have done for the kingdom of God. Every day, the rich man walked past that gate. Every day he saw Lazarus covered in leprosy. Every day he saw the dogs lick his sores. Lazarus wasn't wanting a $20 an hour job. He wasn't wanting food stamps or welfare. He just wanted crumbs that the dog got. At any moment in his life, the rich man could have changed that. He could have clothed him, sent him to a doctor, fed him, gave him a job, gave him a chance to start over again. I think when we get to the end of life, 
I believe many of us, and I don't know, the Bible says that there's 30 minutes of silence in heaven, and that might, that might be a, a moment God will allow us to experience regret. But Schindler's List is such a powerful, powerful truth for a man dedicated everything he had to win 1,100 people from dying at the hands of the Gestapo or the, the secret police, Auschwitz, all those horrors. And at the end of the road, he said, I could have sold this watch. I could have sold this car. I could have, I could have helped one or two more. What a tragic day to get to the end of life to realize there's so much good that was in you. There's so many things you could have done, so many things you could have been involved in. But you had other priorities, other responsibilities. And fifthly, I guess, and this is, this, I'm going I'm to make this personal if I can. To spend forever knowing that you had someone in your life that knew the truth but was too embarrassed to share it. There was a Maria in your life. There was a Tatum in your life. There was a Todd in your life. You worked with them. You played with them. You played cards. You went skiing. You went fishing. You went hunting. They knew all about the realities of eternity, but they never took opportunity to share the truth. And, of course, that brings a lot of weight on us Because are we living our life knowing that those around us are dying and going to hell? If you would take a breath, eight people just close their eyes in death. Before that that clock, from 11 to 12, millions of people will die upon the face of this earth. Every day closing their eyes in death and opening their eyes in the reality of eternity. Look at somebody and say, oh me, oh my. If you give me a few more minutes, I really would like to conclude this. Very young pastor, traveled eight years around the world. God birthed this house. For a year, I made no, I stayed at this, I didn't go preach anywhere for a year, canceled all of our appointments, stayed here for a year. I have an uncle that I didn't really know very well, and I've, I've shared this story with, and I, I don't want to bore you, but there are some that have not heard the story. My uncle, my dad's sister's husband, was the man that created, invented, produced, and reproduced on a mass scale the first self-contained camper. There was a season in the 60s and 70s when people had a pickup truck. They would put a camper... And the, cab would, the, the bed would go over the cab of the truck, and that camper had a sink, had a stove, later, microwaves, wine racks, uh, double beds, queen-size beds, all the accommodations on the road. It was called Tropicana. It was a palm tree and a sun. And my uncle birthed that. My uncle made millions and millions of dollars. My aunt had two Lincoln Continentals that she, whatever mood she was in, she would drive one one day, one the other. They were, they were mega wealthy. They were, they were unbelievably wealthy, if you can imagine. My uncle had three brothers, and they started hunting together and going on these fancy hunting trips and going 
Here and there, my uncle began to drink. My uncle became an alcoholic, and the brothers, let me be careful what I say, this podcast, he lost everything. He lost everything. Went to a little place in Arkansas that doesn't even have a post office. No red light. Bought a little store, major duck hunting environment. So during the duck hunting season, they did well. The rest of the year, they suffered. He went, and he continued to drink. Both of his legs were amputated because of alcohol. My uncle died. As I am the oldest cousin, there are four other cousins in full-time ministry, but as I am the oldest cousin, I do all the funerals and most of the weddings in our family. I was flown in to do the funeral. That little church that probably ran about 70 was packed to capacity, or 300 people. Everybody knew it was my uncle. Everybody knew I was a preacher. Many later told me they were there to see how I was going to put my uncle in heaven. Everybody knew his lifestyle. Everybody knew that he was an alcoholic. Everybody knew all, everything about him, family. That little church packed to capacity. My opening statement in that funeral sermon was this. Several years ago, my uncle made a decision as to where he was to spend eternity. Nothing I'm going to say today to you is going to change the decision he made. There's nothing I can do today that would affect his decision. So today, I want to ask you, what plans have you made for eternity? Because something about a funeral and a heart attack, you never plan. I have no intentions of going to a funeral next week. I have no plans in having a heart attack next week. What the Bible says is appointed unto man wants to die. And watch this. Our kids are preparing for high school. Some are preparing and are in college. Some are thinking about marriage. Some are starting businesses. Some of us are talking about retirement. Some of us are talking about, about, about the future. But the most important plan that you can make today is not about retirement. It's not about your spouse. It's not about your career. It's not about your school. It's about where will you spend eternity. And Patty, we just throw that, Hannah, we just throw that word around. I'll love you forever. I'll, to, the back, to the moon and back, I'll always and forever. We use the word forever so lightly. May I attempt to explain to you the definition of forever? Maria, if you were to ask, and this morning there were three. If you were to ask a hummingbird to fly to the coast of California, let's start at Laguna Beach where we had our first honeymoon. And you were to ask that hummingbird to pick up one grain of sand and teach that hummingbird to fly the 3,000 miles, Oklahoma, Tennessee, the East Coast. And there on the, there on the New York coast or there on the North Carolina coast for that hummingbird to, dep- to drop that grain of sand. And then Danielle to ask that hummingbird to fly back the 3,000 miles traveling at the rate that hummingbirds travel. Pick up another grain of sand and fly back across the United States to deposit that grain there, South Carolina. By the time that hummingbird had picked up every single grain of sand and made the infinite amount of trips back and forth to deposit all the sand on the coast and however long that would have taken, 
that would have been the first second of eternity. That's how long forever is. That's the decision that we make with our life. That's the decision we make with others' lives. Most of us have never really grasped the concept of sin, the mold, the rot, the decay that it has on your, on your being. The best way to describe how much God hates sin is for us to go into the home of a precious couple that have just had a baby. And that day, they've enjoyed that baby. They've, they've, they've held that baby. They've sang to that baby. They've had a blast feeding the baby, chain, all of that. That night, they go in that beautiful bassinet. They lay that baby down, make sure there's no toys it can choke on, make sure it's covered, make sure it's been fed. Glance lovingly at the baby before they walk out of the room to go to their bedroom. And that night, Hannah, through an open window, a rattlesnake trespasses. He makes his way in that baby's room and slithers up into that bassinet, up, up in that crib. And that little baby in the night moves its hand or moves its head. And that rattlesnake strikes, buries its fangs in the face of that child. That poison enters that little baby's body. And they're alone with no one to hold it, no one to comfort it, no one to help it. That baby dies a horrible death. The next morning, early, mom and dad jump in, rush into the bedroom to spend quality time with their baby, only to see their baby as a result of that rattlesnake. If you can bottle that anger, that hatred, those emotions... That couple experienced that very much. If you, could, if you could bottle that and you could magnify it a hundred million times, that would explain how much God hates sin. That's how much. If you can possibly match those emotions. But on the flip side, can I show you how much God loves sin? I have a disease that's going to kill me. I have a disease that's going to take my life. I have a disease that's going to affect my eternity. And I'm going to wind up in the place that I discussed this morning. But there's a baby in this room. This baby is producing an antidote. This baby is producing a healing potion. That, that baby... What that baby's producing, that baby can give me my life. That baby can give me my future. That baby can give me my eternity. But the only way for that antidote to be transferred from that baby to me is to take from the baby that brings me life and health and hope. That baby has to die. God allowed Satan to bury the two fangs of death and the grave upon his own son. And from that cross, he extended to every one of us his baby with the antidote to cause us to live forever, the antidote to allow us to walk in joy unspeakable and the peace that passeth all understanding. God paid that price. 
He allowed that snake to curl itself at the feet of the cross. He allowed that snake to suck the very life from the body of Christ. He allowed that snake to, to, to bury those fangs in his face. How much God loves you. Everyone in this house, your grandmother and grandfather is Adam and Eve. And everyone in this house knows that God took his blood and put it in the veins of Adam and the veins of Eve so that everything that comes from Adam and Eve is connected to God. Every one of you, whether you're 12, whether you're 70, every one of you have a seed. It's called the seed of salvation. It means that you can be reborn again. It means that there's a part of God on the inside of your spiritual womb. And when you die without God and go to hell, God loses a part of himself that he can never redeem. He can never recover. He can never restore. God will never quench the flames of hell. Eternity is eternity. God loves you so much, if he thought it would help, he would let someone come back from the dead to share their testimony. God loves you so much that he will answer your questions. He'll solve your problems. He loves you so much, he will allow his son to live in your heart, adopt you in the kingdom, and give you eternal life. That's how much God loves you. Because when you die in death, God loses a part of himself. It's like a dad losing a daughter or mom losing a son. When they're lost, they can never be recovered to that, to, to that life. And that's the reality of eternity. And when's the last time that we actually grasp the fact that someone that we love and care about, they aren't right. And they're not living right. And they haven't accepted Christ as their Savior. The second funeral that I wanted, Pastor A.C., if you'll help me, the second funeral that I wanted to bring to your attention. Several years ago, God brought a couple horrifically hooked on drugs. His dad had died in prison because of drugs. Came to church, got involved, kind of fell by the wayside, but their little daughter really loved the Lord. And every time that you're around her, you could tell she loved the Lord. Very involved in a youth group across town, a great church. Very much, very much sang the choir, did drama, loved the Lord. Her dad robbed this church. Went to, the, went to the Greyhound station and took a knife and was going to take his life. The station called me and said, one of your members is here. He's going to kill himself. The police are on their way. I got there before the police, convinced him to give me the knife. They arrested him because that was like his third strike. He was sent to prison, has been there ever since, will probably die in prison. No dad. Mom horrifically hooked on pain medicine. Nope, nope, 
no, no godly family. But there was something in here, in her, that loved the Lord. Graduated from high school. And you know how careful I am not to categorize anybody. But she fell in love with a punk. He was a punk. No direction, no motivation, no job, no nothing. Drug addict like me. Got her pregnant. They didn't intend to. It just happened. Hello. He convinced her to have an abortion. She only graduated from high school a few weeks, got an abortion. The life that was in her womb went to be with the Lord. She got depressed, began to medicate begin to get into her mama's stash, begin to take Xanax, begin to mix Xanax with opiates, begin to drink. Told her brother two days earlier that she had taken 20 Xanax, 20. Two days later, she took 30. Her little heart couldn't handle the just rushed to the emergency room. I was somewhere, I think I was in Tulsa, I think I was in Florida. They called Pastor Rhonda in. And there that day on her deathbed, Pastor Rhonda prayed with her the prayer of salvation. There was no physical response that she heard, Hannah. There was no physical response that, that, that she responded. Sometimes you just do what you gotta do. At her funeral that was held here, this building was packed Sunday about 2 o'clock. Probably around 250, 300, most of them under the age of 20. Hundreds, I guess I could say hundreds, dressed in black. It was a big druid crowd at that time at one of the schools and she this kid that she dated anyway and that Sunday afternoon I knew that I had to be very careful what I said to that congregation and here's what I said Nina has loved the Lord her whole life she served God her whole life she made a mistake made it went, went direction she shouldn't have gone in and today she's dead. But I can't help but believe that the God that I serve would have allowed her in that moment right before death to reconnect. I can't help, I can't help, and that's what I told the kids. I said, I can't help believe that. But I can't tell you today that you can live your life any way you want to live it. And you can go anywhere you want to go. And you can say anything you want to say. And you can be anything. I can't, I can't tell you that you, can't, you can do that. The wages of sin or death. And I can't tell you that on your deathbed, you're going to have an opportunity to repent. I'm telling you that today, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you need to make a commitment to Him. And that day, over 50 kids lifted their hand in response to salvation.
30 days later, her mom overdosed. Ashley, we went to the funeral home and they had absolutely no money. They didn't have enough money to cremate her, but Buckner Funeral Home was so kind to embalm her. I went with the son and daughter, two remaining siblings, and Brother Chris in the room that they did the embalming, the director opened the door about two foot and they pulled her gurney up to the door. They didn't come out the hallway. They, they stayed in the, up to the door and that I stood here and the son and daughter stood here and we had a funeral service in the hallway of that embalming. God doesn't want that for any of us. God does not want us to live our life like hell and then there at the end, turn everything over to Christ. He wants you now healthy. He wants you whole. He wants you focused. He wants to impart his destiny upon you, the purpose and plan that he has for you. And there is a good purpose, a good plan. And today there's a vote. All of heaven votes for you. God sent his son, sends miracles, sends angels, sends his word. All of hell votes against you to tie one to one. And the vote that breaks the tie is not mama's vote, it's not dad's vote, it's not pastor's vote, it's not boyfriend's vote, it's not husband's vote. It's your vote. Your vote breaks the tie. You choose your eternity. As every head is bowed, as every eye is closed. This morning, if I don't impart to you anything other than souls are crying, men are dying, won't you lead them to the cross? Go and find them, help to win them, win the lost at any cost. But pastor, I don't want to be a nerd. I don't want to be called a spiritual idiot. I don't, you know, right now it's not about what they call you or how they categorize you. It's about the fact that you have the key of life in your spirit and you have the ability to give it away. The most important thing is that God puts in your life people that watch your life they see God moving in your, they should see God moving in your life. They should see the favor of the Lord. They should hear your testimony. They should, they should see your worship, see your, your integrity. You don't laugh at those jokes. You don't go to those particular type of movies. You don't put those particular things in. You're different. And that difference becomes a magnet that, that people begin to be drawn to you. They see what you have and they like it. And we don't give the glory to self-helps or self-teaching or charisma or matzi. We give all the glory to God. Paul said, while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. So this morning, I want you to leave with someone. I'm going to ask God in just a minute to put someone in your heart and spirit. 
35 years ago, I gave my 16-year-old cousin his first marijuana cigarette. For the next 30 years, my cousin was horrifically challenged by cocaine, alcohol, drugs. Every time the preacher said, are there any unspoken requests, I would always lift my hand. Anytime the preacher said, are you praying for someone to get saved? Any anytime that, that, that request was made, I always prayed for my cousin Russell. About four years ago, my cousin Russell had a personal experience with the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit, and today his entire house is serving the Lord. I'm going to ask for God to put someone in your heart, someone in your spirit that you care about, and you know they're not right. It's not about righteousness or holiness. It's about confession. It's about accepting Christ. That's the only way to heaven. There's no, there's no good works. There's no good deeds. There's no right family, right money. It has nothing to do with any of that. And many in life have been burned by Christians. Many in life have been burned by Christian businesses. Many in life have been burned by ministers, by leaders. And they're touchy. But as God prepared Nineveh for Jonah, so can God prepare your loved ones for you. The whole nation got saved because God had begun to deal with their heart. And the Bible says in the last days, multitudes in the valley of decision, the time of the Lord is near. I believe there's a stirring taking place in our nation. I believe there's a stirring taking place in the nations of the world. David said, ask of me and I'll give you nations as an inheritance. I believe God's not going to send world with known leaders or speakers. I believe God's going to raise up in local bodies, missionaries that have a burden for a nation. They're going to go and God's going to prepare that nation. And entire nations are going to come to the Lord. But right now, instead of focusing on entire nations, we need to focus, first of all, on ourselves. How about your heart? Is it right with God? That's the thing that counts today. And then when you get yourself right, you become healthy and you're able to become that bridge over troubled water that so many that have lost their footing, they've lost their way, they're stumbling, they don't have direction, they don't have purpose, they don't, they don't know what they're doing. Then God puts you in their life as a stop sign, as, a, as an instrument of mercy and grace. As no one is looking around, as every head is bowed this morning, if you're not where you need to be with the Lord. If you're to walk out in this parking lot, get in your vehicle, turn left, and somebody driving on the wrong side of the road were to hit you head on and you were to die instantly. And you don't know if you'd open your eyes at a place of pearly gates, surrounded by the Lord and loved ones, or you'd open your eyes in the dungeons of darkness. You're not sure. That's where you're at this morning, right now in life. Would you put your hand up, put it back down. Is there one? Is there another? God, touch our children. God, touch our moms. God, touch our family. Father, you did not send your son to scare the hell out of us. You sent your son to love the hell out of us. You sent your son to give us life, opportunity, and hope. And how carelessly we have misplaced that gift and abandoned and abused that gift. But today we are focused to 
Today we realize there's a lot at stake. Today we realize in the corridors of heaven there are millions and millions of angels that are interceding. Family that's gone on, our grandparents, loved ones that have gone on before us, interceding, calling out for our salvation. And to our left, there is a cavern, there's a, there a tunnel, there's a place of darkness that leads to the beautiful side of evil where the enemy tries to make sin look so attractive and so, so wonderful. But the end of that journey is death. So today, Lord, as we stand in the balance, all of heaven votes yes, all of hell votes no. Today we break that tie. And we ask you to come into our heart. We make room for you today. We ask you to wash away our sins, knowing that we will fail again. We will drop the ball. We won't be perfect, but we're trying. Today we ask you to put in our heart and spirit someone close to us. Someone, if they were to die, it would crush us and break our heart. We would lose our joy because they aren't where they're supposed to be. And Lord, maybe I really have not lived the kind of life I should have lived in front of them. Maybe I really haven't followed up on opportunities that you have given. But no more, Lord. No more. Now I await every opportunity to share the blessed hope. I await every opportunity to give my testimony because it is my testimony that overcomes the thief and overcomes hell and introduces God in heaven. Let today not just be an emotional moment that I was touched emotionally, but let me leave today with compassion for the lost. Jesus saw the crowd and had compassion.